Icons. This show is all about the people behind the science of so. biotechnology and medical devices. Through the stories of the people, I hope that Lab Rats to Unicorns is able to describe the transformative process of you know, how an idea starts in the lab and eventually becomes a life-saving treatment or a product that, that helps patients with diseases. Life-saving. Life, life well, today I'm really excited about today's episode. We're going to focus really around the word and the concept of ecosystem as it relates to life sciences and building great companies. I'm really overjoyed and delighted and honored to have um, special guests here today. This is the biggest episode we've ever done with the biggest names and the biggest group at the same time. So I'm joined by Azuri Collier. She's the president of Women in Bio here in Chicago. Um, she's also the director of enterprise innovation at AbbVie, and she uh, is a scientist by training, PhD in cognitive neuroscience. Michelle Burvey Hoffman, who's the executive director of the Chicago Biomedical Consortium, and also a scientist by training, PhD in molecular biologist. And um, John Conrad, really excited to have John on board here for the conversation as well. He represents uh, iBio and the iBio Institute. He's the president and CEO and uh, a business background by training, M MBA, and focused on finance over his career. So welcome to the show. Great having everybody on. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so for having much. us. Azuri, maybe just jumping in with you, can you tell us a little bit about what got you into science? You know, early on in the um, your journey, what were some of the things that kind of motivated you to get into that field in general? Absolutely, yeah. No, thanks for having me and thanks for asking. I don't know if you remember Encyclopedia Britannica. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, my parents were those parents that would buy each and every edition from the local salesperson. I looked in one of the editions and saw a transparency of the human body and it included the brain. I was in the second grade, really interested. I always I love wondered. that page. That's yeah. really cool. Transparency yeah, I page. forgot all about it until yeah. you mentioned it. Yeah. yeah, and I always would ask why people did what they did. I learned that the brain controls human behavior, and I was hooked ever since then and really just wanted to understand everything about how the brain worked, human behavior, and that started me on my journey of curiosity, which is I'm still very curious to this day. Oh, that's great. And Michelle, any similar kind of inspiration that got you started on that path? Um, well, so I I liked a lot of different things when I was a kid. I think the how did I get into what I got into in terms of science was I actually I actually went to college to do um, international economic development. I wanted to, uh, I was young, I wanted to save the world. And um, as part of that, I had to take plant science, right? Because a lot of it is about, you know, agriculture and crops and things like that. And what I found was, is that I love the genetics. Like, I thought that was the coolest thing. I went into a plant lab, a botany lab at Cornell. And what I found was is that I was really bad with plants. Like I would just kill them. And I got more interested in the bacteria that kill the plants than the plants themselves. And if you've ever been to, uh, if you've ever seen my house, you'll note that um, I carry on that legacy today. All of my <laughs> plants are fake. And yeah, so that's how I got into genetics and science. And interestingly, I started studying bacteria, which don't have brains, um, but eventually <laughs> got to a similar place that, uh, as Azuri. No, that's really cool. And 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 so, John, you know, our, our backgrounds are similar in the sense that, you know, I, I'm not a scientist. I love interacting with scientists, love the outputs and the creativity that goes with, you know, building great scientific enterprises. But I think we have a similar background in the sense of kind of finance by training and, um, you know, undergrad and, and, and MBA as well. Can you talk a little bit about what got you into the the position that you're in and kind of what drove you in that direction. Yeah, I mean, um, I have an odd background. It's the confluence of different things coming together. So I grew up in Elkhart, Indiana, um, which is where Mao's Laboratories was, founder of Alka-Seltzer. Um, so surrounded by the industry, starting off, we also owned a veterinary clinic there. Um, and we're the first practice in Indiana that had ultrasound um, and a different um, diagnostic tools for, for dogs. And we also owned a farm um, at the same time. So life sciences throughout my whole life early on was was really important. Now I went to Indiana University, had a psychology and business background, um, and then just fell into the community. There was just a job posting that they needed somebody to run the business ad of iBio. Um, and I said, that looked interesting, um, just based on what I had from growing up. 
So, and then went on to do my MBA, which is in strategy actually, um, and, and finance. Oh, so, that's great. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Well, and maybe you could talk just a little bit about then what iBio is, what are you focused on and kind of what, what impact are you, have you seen, you know, kind of over that duration? Cause you've been there for uh, almost two decades, right? I mean, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. This is my 20th year, um, okay. which is crazy to say. Um, and so, yeah, so iBio is the trade association for the life sciences. And when I say life sciences, we focus on pharmaceutical, biotechnology, medical devices, med tech, and then also food and nutrition um, to a certain extent. Um, our organization is really focused on, in the state of Illinois, what do we need to do to help companies get started, primarily from our universities? What do we need to do to help them grow? Um, and what do we need to do as a state to attract companies to move here? Um, so a lot of what we do is on the policy side, on economic development. Um, and then also we focus a lot on community building, engagement, um, and then we also have a whole arm that's focused on actually STEM education and workforce development. So, Well, and you mentioned the word economic development just for the audience, too. Maybe just breaking that down a little bit. You mentioned also, international. Michelle, international economic development. Maybe you can take that one, too. Kind of what do you think about as you look at impact through economic development? Maybe define that. Yes, Michelle. Yeah, so... When I think about a lot and, you know, probably honed the last three years working in this ecosystem is what are the choices that policymakers and the business community make to create jobs and retain talent in a particular area. And that's how I think about that's how I think about, you know, when the CBC is involved in economic development. It's that intentionality to creating jobs in place uh, here in Chicago. And tell us a little bit more about CBC. What's the role sure. and function and uh, a little bit about um, what what areas that you're particularly focused on and maybe even how it interrelates to some of the activities that, that John's engaged in yeah. as well. Yeah, so I, again, I have a, a little bit of an odd background and an odd journey. Um, so first off, I'll say the Chicago Biomedical Consortium is a research consortium uh, between the three major research universities in Chicago. So University of Illinois, Chicago, University of Chicago, and Northwestern. Um, we are right now exclusively funded by the several funds of the Chicago Community Trust. We've been around since 2006. And the CBC, for all intents and purposes, uh, was intended to, it started as a way to get scientists at the different universities to work together on basic science. However, in 2016, all of the stakeholders decided um, that it was time for a new stage. And this is where economic development came in or comes in. And the idea that, you know, I think we have the most R1 universities in Chicago, in the United States, except for Boston and New York. And then you add on the, t the two DOE laboratories, we are awash with academic innovation. And I think, you know, at that time in 2016, you know, biotech was taking off. And the idea that, you know, we should really retain the value of this federal research that goes into our universities by doing early science commercialization. And so the CBC has really morphed from, you know, just exclusively for academics to how do we do early science commercialization. But I think even before my time, it was about the early science commercialization, which doesn't always translate to economic development, right? And I think we know this, that, you know, uh, what I think is so great about what everybody is trying to do is, is that prior to these efforts, we have great IP and we know it because it creates value outside of the state of Illinois. And so the CBC is trying to use, trying to put one foot in the university, one foot outside the university to really retain that value. In terms of just one last thing, like where I came from, I think it's a really interesting role for me because I certainly have my academic side, you know, having gotten my PhD and done a postdoc. Um, I have my, you know, industry side where I worked as a strategic advisor to life sciences companies. But then I spent time at P33 doing economic development. And really the way that we think about it is we work in partnership, not just uh, you know, we work in partnership with P33 to really achieve economic development in an inclusive manner. And for the audience, can you define P33? Yes. Um, so P33 is a uh, privately funded uh, economic development organization in Chicago that is dedicated to elevate Chicago into a tier one inclusive tech ecosystem. Um, they started in 2019. It's helm helmed by Brad Henderson. Uh, it's chaired or there's three co-chairs including the civic committee 
Penny Pritzker and Chris Gladwin, who's a very notable tech entrepreneur. And so they're really trying to work hand in hand with all the different organizations in Chicago to make sure that, you know, no graduate, no mid-level, mid-career person and no senior person has to leave to get a really good tech position. Yeah, and ma- making great progress as well as, uh, you know, Chicago's position, you know, as a tech community uh, remains, you know, in full swing Absolutely. and momentum and, and on the rise. So a great organization contributing greatly to uh, the further development of uh, our ecosystem. Um, and back even on CBC, it's interesting in so many ways, it's been highly successful when you think about uh, how ecosystems get formed. In that case, you know, it was uh, it was a, f- a family, uh, the Cyril family, that uh, really was very successful in building the GD Cyril uh, over many years into a pharmaceutical company. And then they kind of took a lot of their wealth and invested it back into the community. Absolutely. And in their case, the mandate was, as I recall, to kind of get the three universities to work on a research basis more cohesively together. And, and so that natural then evolution was now taking the products of the, that great research that they were kind of helping to forge that really wasn't there before because right. you had these silos that were in place before. Um, now you have uh, the, the, the outputs that are occurring. Now, how do you take that out and, you know, get those into patients, you know, and, and usually that gets it into that translational um phase where CBC is now really, really ingrained. So it's an exciting time. And we'll get back to that in just a minute in terms of kind of where you're focused and what you think are some of the next elements of what have to happen uh, within CBC to kind of help facilitate that um, bridging the gap, going from the university and straddling into the into the marketplace. But Azuri, maybe you could talk a little bit about Women in Bio, how you became the president of the National Foundation and why you chose to move back to Chicago. Thanks for asking. Yeah. We actually are an affiliate organization of BIO. Okay. So I came to know BIO as a postdoc when I was in the University of Pennsylvania doing my postdoc in neuropsychiatry. I knew I didn't want to be in academia. I really wanted to figure out what is this technology commercialization. I worked in the tech transfer office. It was interesting. I, t- I did the market assessments and the market evaluations, and I worked on the side with smaller biotech companies. And I just was really hooked on how do you get the science into a process or a product that's going to impact someone's life. So I met Bio, and my advisors told me flat out, why are you moving back to Chicago? This was the middle of 2010s. They said, stay here. Stay in Philadelphia. Stay in Boston. Go to San Francisco. Why are you coming back to Chicago? And at the time, it was the first seeds of matter. Um, There were additional things that were growing and being seeded in Chicago. And I said, you know what? I want to go back to Chicago because I want to grow this ecosystem. I want to be a part of the next phase of leaders that can leverage the foundations that were already established and push it forward. So I was pretty intentional with that come back to Chicago uh, decision for me. Yeah, and I became involved in Women in Bio in um, 2015. So we are a 3,000-member organization of both women and men, but we focus on really supporting the development of young girls and women across the continuum of their life. So it's everything from an early interest in STEM all the way to thinking about your executive roles and getting on corporate boards, getting on startup boards, and everything in between. So we really focus on women helping women, empowering, educating, and moving forward that needle. Again, we have 3,000 members, 14 chapters, two interest groups internationally because we're really thinking about what are some of the needs of, of women more globally and allies globally. And we're really proud of all of our initiatives. And it's volunteer-led and powered. So when we think about who is that talent that's going to foster the next scientific innovation, who are these really enthusiastic leaders? These are many of our women in bio and what they're doing in their respective organizations, nonprofits, as well as uh, institutional organizations. So we're proud of that. Uh, it's amazing. And just following the progress, uh, where, where do you think we stand kind of from a global perspective as we welcome women you know, into leadership roles and try to promote them through some of the initiatives that you've described, where are we now and where do you think we need to get in that regard? Yeah, I think we're making progress for sure. So when we think about that network, to really cultivate that belonging and cultivate that understanding of where do you go and get that professional support to understand, how do I become a manager? How do I become a mid-career person? How do I get my first board, right? I think it's that power of drawing that journey 
and having the mentorship and importantly, the sponsorship, folks who will say your name in the rooms when you're not there to provide additional opportunities for you to accelerate. You know, we have a ways to go. Of course, the pandemic impacted our lives in many, many ways, let alone a lot of women leaving the workforce um, to manage different responsibilities in a different way. We're working to think about what a returnship could look like. How do we re-engage and, and at the right time in the right place? There's a good amount of uh, work to be happening there. And also executive women, right? There's a specific need and a specific set of experiences that can promote executive women, particularly when we think about at the board. Right. All these organizations specifically for health tech, fintech, all of the above really need diverse leadership, diverse ways of thinking. We already know the business case for how that drives business efforts. We want to continue to uh, push forward on those efforts to get more women on boards as well. Oh, that's outstanding. And again, it's just kind of watching, you know, the development of great organizations that I've been a part of or have witnessed from the sidelines. You know, that diversity of talent, diversity of ideas, uh, whether it be, you know, functional diversity, science, business. Um, gender diversity, um, racial diversity, all those things um, really are at the cutting edge of creating more innovative businesses, both in terms of the markets that are being served, as well as the products that are being developed and the contributions of of diverse teams that are putting those ideas together. Uh, Maybe, Michelle, walking backwards a little bit, um, as you think about your pathway to where you are, you know, in in a you know highly visible, very important leadership role in the region. Um, I can imagine it was a difficult journey. Uh, and what are there are there steps along the way, or headwinds that you faced, or any examples that maybe you had to kind of work around that may be instructional for those that are walking behind you that are following your example, that are aspiring to kind of get to where where you are, and maybe just describe that for yeah. us. No, it was actually super simple. John. So I'm, you know, just go out there. <laughs> no, I, it, it was, it was quite difficult for, for a number of reasons. Um, so what I'll say is, is that, you know, as, uh, so there's first being a woman in science, um, and being a woman in science in sort of biophysics and neuroscience tons, the more, uh, uh, Sometimes there are certain fields which are very, very dominated by men, and definitely neuroscience and biophysics is is certainly one of them. Um, So just really finding my way through that, um, figuring out how I wanted to lead my life, always loving this, like it's it's always going back to the science, that that was difficult. And then when you decide you don't want an academic career, I am, uh, I am, I'm much older than Missouri. And so when I was in my postdoc, even in Boston at the time, right, the idea that you would leave, uh, you know, what was, I, I love science. I was a successful graduate student. I was a success, successful postdoc. Um, the idea that you would leave was like, just what, what would you do? Why mm-hmm. would you do that? Mm-hmm. And um, I like to say, you know, coming from a Jewish background, like all of my postdoc advisor, my PhD advisor, like half a department at Berkeley, like sat Shiva and like wore all black uh, in mourning for me. <laughs> um, so, so transitioning there. And then on the other side, when you leave science and you go into more industry, again, at the time, it's, it's much more common now for PhDs to leave and go into, you know, stay around, but do something different like communications or finance or something like that. But then people would like look at my resume and be like, you have never had a real job. Like you are in the 32nd grade and I don't know what you can do. So there was that. And then once you get over that hump, right, then you, you know, I did a lot of work in finance, like investment banking and strategic advisory. So that was always fun. Um, And then as you move up, what you find, like in any sort of executive role, what you find is, is that you are increasingly the only woman in the room. And so, um, you know, it, it took me a while to to get past that. And then the the last thing is, is like, you know, I, I kind of spent my professional life in either the Bay Area or Boston up until 2019. So even transitioning and then, you know, made a very conscious decision that I thought Chicagoland has all of the elements to be successful in life sciences. And I wanted to help with that because I just, I don't want another PhD to be like, I'm in the 32nd grade and I can't get a job. Um, 
Uh, and I think just even transitioning to understand, you know, Chicago has its own flavor and understanding that. So those are those are all the things that I had to navigate. And what I'll say is, is that, and, and I tell my fellows this when I train them, so much of navigating these things is context, is switching context, right? Like understanding, here's where I came from. Here's where I want to go. How do, I, how do I bridge that? Well, um, you talked a little bit about that um, uh, changing of the guard almost in, in the academic realm, where as we're living today, you mentioned uh, that many PhDs have or postdocs have different options available to them that go beyond the academy. Um, but there still is a gravitational pull with inside the academy, in my experience, to kind of continue to prioritize uh, the focus on that academic pathway. But refreshingly, that's changing. Some of it's really driven by economics, right? As the tenure line comes down, uh, the, the research dollars from uh, granting agencies, you know, comes down. And I think that's been a big uh, piece of why you're seeing universities stretch into the ecosystem more so, not just for the opportunities of their graduates, but also there's economics involved in that as well. Maybe I, I will also say, right, so in 2004 or whatever, three, I can't remember, when I was casting around, I would see that of the professors that I knew, uh, you know, uh, I'll just use Berkeley and <clears throat> um, Harvard where I was finishing up, uh, you know, maybe 20% were on boards. They might be on scientific advisory boards, but not actually as co-founders. I would say now I can look through my old Berkeley MCB department and be like, I know that guy's company. I know that guy's company. I know that guy's company. Right. Yeah. And, and, and what I see when I talk to younger faculty is they really understand that implication. Mm -hmm. And it's a huge issue. And then just if I can say one more thing, like when we go back to economic development, I think one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about economic development in Chicago is not just because I live here and I think it's a great opportunity. It is. But I think what I have thought about since I 1995, which is when I finished undergrad, God, I'm old. Um, the, there are not enough jobs that will support a you know, good quality of life for life sciences PhDs. And uh, we meant so many of them. But when we think about, okay, well, you know, we know there's a finite number of academic jobs. What can else can we do? When I was in Boston, I started to see just huge changes, right? Like people could get out of their PhD and go right. get a reasonable job, buy yeah. a house, do the things that they had put off for a long time. And I really, really want that for Chicago. Yeah, absolutely. No, and maybe John, can you comment a little bit about what you're seeing and, you know, thinking talent pipeline back on the topic of trying to fuel, you know, the future of biotech with a more diverse uh, talent pipeline. I know that iBio does a lot um, in STEM programs, for example. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about your experience there and maybe just your observations over the past kind of uh, two decades? What, how do you see the university uh, components changing and how is that fueling the, uh, the, the potential for the development of um, a more vibrant ecosystem that creates better economic outcomes and, and job opportunities that Michelle's pointed to. Yeah, I mean, our so our membership really saw early on that STEM education was incredibly important and the talent pipeline needed to be more diverse um, and to address it at an early stage. Um, so looking at just the research that was available, what we saw was that primarily girls lost interest in STEM around middle school. Um, and so we created programs um, that have now been replicated nationwide that are focused on attracting girls in my primarily underserved communities um, with STEM programming. So we do after-school programs um, and we do summer camps um, that are dedicated to girls grades three through eight in underserved communities. Um, a lot of them are in Hispanic communities. Um, and so we focus on not only providing hands-on STEM education and activities just for girls, but we also bring industry into the room. Um, and so they have an opportunity to talk and meet with scientists from Abbott, mm -hmm. from Horizon, from a number of our other member companies, just to get an understanding of, look, STEM is more than just a word. Right. Like there is a life that I can do. Mm -hmm. um, and we talked to them early on about, you don't have to be a research scientist, which is great. Um, 
because STEM needs and our industry needs everyone mm -hmm. um, that understands how to do communications or understands law. Um, and so we've been doing this since I think 2006, we launched our first kind of programs. We've been building it up. We've expanded now. We have a, a partnership with Goshen Education and DOD um, and support um, schools that service military families as well, um, because military families, once again, are uprooted, they're moved around, their students need specific kind of help and understanding and resources. Um, so our members early on saw that, and we've been building this program throughout and kind of growing um, with it. Um, I think what Michelle was saying about the CBC and its evolution is really interesting because it aligns with how we've seen our industry, our <laughs> ecosystem change. Um, and that was about 10 years ago, we saw a major shift with our universities and that kind of focus on being more entrepreneurial minded. Um, and Johnny, I think you were very much at the center of that probably um, with your time at University of Chicago. Um, but we've always been home to big academic research. We've always been home to big industry um, with AbbVie, Estellas, Takeda, a lot of the large kind of companies. 10 years ago, we saw that shift. A lot of our big companies, their R&D functions went to the coasts where they've been more focused on entrepreneurial activities. Um, and our universities started focusing more on creating entrepreneurial activities. Um, and so what we've been focused on kind of in that shift about 10 years ago, we decided we need to look at how do we realign the resources in our community to support the startup ecosystem um, and realign some of the incentives and programs that were originally created for large company support and large company attraction. So that's where we're looking at creating state matching SBIR programs. We're looking at retooling our R&D tax credit um, to help startup companies. Um, and we, it's been really kind of exciting because we kind of laid out a kind of four tier plan um, focused on um, first and foremost infrastructure um, because to support the growth of companies coming out of universities, they need some place to go. Um, the next tier is capital, obviously. So attracting not only non-dilutive capital with SBIR and matching programs, um, but also starting to look at our venture kind of uh, investment within our community, which has been going up, um, but looking at what do we need to do specifically, creating more homegrown venture options. Um, workforce development is the next piece, and that's going to be huge, and that's where we need to make sure that we have jobs and we have scientists coming out of our universities and they're landing into companies or creating companies and providing them support. Um, but also we, our industry needs a lot of middle skilled technicians um, or on the biomanufacturing side. And that's where we're, you have to start looking at community colleges and making sure that everybody has an opportunity to get into what is an extremely high paying um, industry. Um, we're looking at in the conversations just recently about comparing our industry to the automakers industry. Automakers was always the industry where if you wanted to be middle class, that's the job you wanted. Um, and so when they're looking at, you know, an automaker working at the manufacturing side, it's gonna make about 50 to $60,000. Mm -hmm. We look at a company like Jaguar, um, which is a gene therapy company in Chicago. They opened up their manufacturing site in Raleigh, North Carolina. North Carolina. Um, Average pay is $90,000. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's jobs. making sure that we're getting, everybody has an opportunity to get those jobs. Yeah, um, no, it, and the well said, and also well characterized in terms of kind of key ingredients for um, a vibrant, sustainable ecosystem. You mm -hmm. know, the talent flow, the capital, the infrastructure, and really the workforce development to try to, to fuel the growth. And you touched on kind of biomanufacturing being a really big growth opportunity that's producing profound transformational therapies for patients, CAR-T, mm -hmm. you know, um, products like Kimraya, you know, are, are producing cures. You know, I mean, that innovation came out of Carl June's lab at the University of Pennsylvania. And, you know, it, it shows on one hand what impact one person can have on an industry. Mm -hmm. uh, it can also show, you know, that you're going to get constrained if you can't uh, produce the material fast enough to cure the patients, cell therapy, the infrastructure on that side of the industry, uh, the demands and the opportunities are growing, but the talent pool is is pretty constricted. So I think you're in the right spot with regards to thinking about, you know, how do you um, 
realign the talent flow and uh, open up new economic development opportunities, but it's market-driven. I mean, it, there's constraints by the companies. If you can't hire fast enough to make enough material, then you can't produce the product and you can't generate sales and profits. So I think it makes a lot of you know pure economic sense to move in that direction. You know, um, Azuri, just coming back to your story, the choice to come back to Chicago. You know, we talk a little bit about the the ingredients for success of a sustainable ecosystem. Um, what are you seeing now in terms of um, your experience in Philadelphia, for example, where you know we talk a lot about the the growth of the industry, the biocentry um, being driven by, um, in many cases, new modalities like cell and gene therapy, and Penn being a place where a lot of that was occurring. How do you kind of think about Chicago? in relation to its unique maybe advantages of if we were creating an ecosystem from scratch, because we're all entrepreneurs here, right? I mean, so the Chicago is an entrepreneur's ecosystem. It's risky, right? I mean, it's not already developed. It's There's a lot of raw materials. There's a lot of things to work with. But if you could imagine kind of creating an ecosystem from scratch that would be unique and different from Philadelphia, from North Carolina, from uh, the Bay Area, um, what 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 would it look like? What are some of the things that you think you'd like to infuse into that ecosystem if you could just kind of wave a magic wand? What would it what would it include? I love it. Yeah, thanks for that question. Happy to dream a little bit here. And I think I just focus on two key points, right? People and then the actual technology. So you know what really makes a vibrant ecosystem? Why are we here? Why do we? Why are we so passionate about the work we do in Chicago? That's because we have a great respect for each other and we continue to want to drive forward together. We're not working in individual silos. We're coming together. We're sharing information. We're sharing strategies. We're trying to build that new Burnham plan, right? That looks like biotechnology research and pulling it all together. So I would say, you know, honestly, I think there's something a little, you know, politely arrogant about Chicago. You know, like we don't want to be the little brother, the little kid that's left out. We say, you know, let's go global with it. Let's think about how can we dominate on a world's on a world stage, right? So when I think about that spirit of Chicago, at least, I'm a transplant. I'm from Georgia, so I'll be very candid about that. Um, when I think about what what drew me here and what kept me here, there is that you know fighting spirit, that relentless spirit that says, all are welcome, come here, work hard, and we'll work hard together. So there's something about that collaborative that for me is really impressive. When I think about technology, I spent a lot of time in management consulting, thinking about what does digital look like across life sciences? How does that help accelerate specifically R&D? Everything down from preclinical, really thinking about enhancing how scientists and technicians leverage technology to manage their labs, to manage their data, to think about artificial intelligence and how that might do supporting um, the design of clinical trials, thinking about analyzing data to improve your endpoints in your clinical trials. So quite frankly, I would love for the secret sauce of Chicago in terms of biotechnology if I had to just design it myself, it would really be that leading edge in terms of AI, in terms of big data analytics. So we can source real world data from across, for example, therapeutic areas, really understand how to meet unmet need in a way that no one else has. And develop novel mechanisms of action that are really going to change unmet needs. So that's kind of how I think about it, where, you know, Chicago researchers can be front and center around new mechanisms of action and leveraging technology to move forward and drive change. So I love it. That's I love what it. I would dream yeah. of. It's, kind of, it's, yeah. it's the world's fair. It's the Burnham plan. So exactly. looking ahead, I like that bold vision. Yeah. And maybe just flipping it over to you, Michelle, what are some of the things that you see? I, I love your, you know, theme around um, converged AI and AI-enabled life sciences. Do you think that's a key part of our future and maybe a differentiable uh, quality of what we're building here? I, I certainly do. I think Azuri said it very, very well. I think, so just if I could take a step back, you know, what do I think, what, this is the question that everybody wants to know, right? They can go to Boston, they can go to San Diego, they can go to the Bay Area. Why come to Chicago? And my answer is, well, I don't quite say it like this, but but what I saw working outside of Chicago, as I mean, I think we're living through right now, is that there was a huge inflation in the price of, of innovation, right? There's so many things driving that, including the venture model, how things changed in the early aughts, et cetera, et cetera. And what I saw in my own client work and all that kind of thing is that we were going earlier and earlier to academic innovation. 
And what my big pharma clients or large consolidator clients really wanted is they wanted the cheap, they wanted an asset that was inexpensive, but they also wanted it to be innovative. And they had very, very, you know, big wish list. Yeah, sure. They also wanted to be innovative. And in order to do that, you you can't, you have to go to the academic level, right? And so what we started to see is, is that, you know, and obviously this is pioneered by flagship pioneering and Atlas and all those guys, is you find the right scientist and you can literally build value around them. And when I looked at Chicago, I was like, that is what we can do. And that's how I see it. Now, now I think that that is what's going to make us special. I think there's two things that we can add on to it. The first is, is that we are not the only place that is trying to sell their academic innovation. Um, but what we can do is put a good housekeeping seal of approval on it, right? So, and this is how I see one of the functions of the CBC, right? So you take an asset through our paces and you will have gotten robust diligence that says, here's the right experimental plan. Here's why we think this is a good idea down to what does the clinical trial eventually look like in the target product. And is that primarily the fellows program you're referring that, to, or is that a big part of it? It's it's a big part of it. So it's a it's a conjunction between the fellows program and the accelerator awards. So so I think I think we have lots of academic innovation. We can put some elbow grease into making sure it's validated. And then the other thing that I think Azuri uh, alluded to. So we probably get in somewhere between two to two to three billion dollars in life sciences federal funding. Uh, across like our big R1 universities every year. That is a lot. And if you ask me, because everybody wants the pen story, they want to say, you know, what are you guys better at than anybody else? Is it cell therapies? The answer is we actually do a lot. Like I've looked at this. I know your it's people. Diversity. Your people have looked at this, right? We, we, we do so much and we do so much so well that it is very difficult to be like, we are a super star in this one level of, you know, biology that biotech is going to be interested in. But, but we've done the analysis that if you take another filter over it and not look and say, you know, cell therapy or gene therapy or natural killer cells or whatever it is. This modality agnostic. Right, whatever modality it is. What... I can say with a lot of certainty is, is that what we do better is that intersection between engineering and biology. So we do a lot of, I, I'm not a big fan of the word nanotechnology because I don't know what it means, but we do a lot of take some sort of biological entity and put it together with the engineering prowess that is honestly something that distinguishes not just Chicago, but the Midwest. And we can do things that nobody else does. And this is from drug delivery, sensors, including quantum sensors. Um, the synthetic biology that we do here is amazing. Um, chemical biology, which sometimes should be called synthetic biology, right? Like all of these different ways of taking different kinds of scientists and saying, let's solve a biological problem. I think that is the thing that we do really, really well. And so to Azuri's point, a huge part of that engineering prowess is the idea that we can extract data, whether it be from a medical device, whether it be from a clinical trial, and use that data to create more innovation. And so those three things, right, the academic innovation with validation, uh, the idea that you're going to have uh, uh, AI and, and engineering, and then this idea that we also have extreme diversity, I think those are the things that really distinguish us, or yeah. will distinguish us. No, I think I think you're 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 hitting it right on the mark too. And I always felt too like you know over over time, one of the missing ingredients we had was that connective tissue, the glue that kind of cut across each one of those very diverse different modalities or scientific fields. You mentioned really a whole range of of areas driven from material science to immunology, you name it. I think much like going back to, you know, uh, Chicago's founding, you know, it's a, it's a melting pot. It's a melting pot also kind of on the technology level and the talent level as well. Um, what, what can those unique ingredients produce that is different? And I think I also like to step back and um, I'm, I'm really of the, of the school of thought that, you know, ecosystem building is not a zero sum game. You're not, the, you're not in the, the the competition business. You're trying not to take one thing from another place and put it here, or or uh, what are we exporting? I think that if you look at it, 
and you're trying to build an ecosystem, it's a global ecosystem. And what are the unique strengths of different parts of the geography, um, given the cultures, given the, the types of technologies and ec expertise that come out of a given region, what do they contribute to the bigger pool uh, at the global level um, in concert with and collaboration with uh, partners in Philadelphia, in Boston, in the Bay Area, in North Carolina. And I see, you know, our, our view of the future uh, as we look ahead kind of at Portal is there's a democratization underway um, given a lot of the changes kind of beginning at the university level, um, starting back to what we talked about in terms of how funding lines have changed. There's a greater interest by universities to become more applied in nature. Um, and in, in being more applied, they're attracting a different type of faculty. And I think we've seen that definitely in the last 10 years in Chicago through the investments into the innovation platforms of the universities. They've attracted a kind of a new phenotype um, that wasn't necessarily part of our ecosystem before. And that phenotype would maybe resemble more someone coming out of Berkeley or something com coming out of Stanford that um, it's just wired to, to go from idea to commercialization and application. Now those faculty exist in this ecosystem and capital flows are different from the way they were before. COVID has really changed and opened up the way that you can run an operation in multiple distributed fashion. So I think what's happened is the pendulum has swung to the talent. If the talent wants to be in a given location, then the companies and the capital need to go to that location. That's very different from the way that these ecosystems have been built in the last 40, 50 years. And, and that's not to say that a local ecosystem like Boston or San Francisco won't continue to grow and flourish and develop. It, 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 they will. But I think what's starting to happen is a distribution of those innovative faculty, the capital that needs to go to it, the, an empowerment. Um, you know, as we see life sciences, you talk about uh, infrastructure, life sciences investment into real estate you know, hardware, uh, like the building we're in, in Fulton Labs and at Portal, by having those vehicles to work within that is nearby, there's now becoming a, a bigger opportunity for um, newer ecosystems within that global grid to start start to emerge. But I think it's important too. I don't, I don't know what you think about that, John, but again, yeah. there's, there's always these, um, the, the press always likes to kind of uh, lay it out as, you know, um, uh, more of a competition. And <laughs> I've always really stayed away from that because it's not, it, it's really about kind of building into and, and sharpening the the tools around who are we, how are we different, what are we contributing to, and why are we valuable, and why are we on the same peer level, like you said, um, having a little bit of, uh, you know, moxie and swagger <laughs> rather than how are we not doing something else. Mm -hmm. uh, any comments on, on that, John? I think it's a friendly competition. Mm -hmm. That's how I like to, uh, to characterize it. And I think um, throughout our industry, um, it's a friendly competition because if I have a question or if we have an idea of a program, I can call my counterpart in Massachusetts or I can call my counterpart in, in Pennsylvania um, and we'll have a conversation. They'll share resources with us. Um, we saw an immediate impact here with the expansion of our infrastructure. And I, I agree with you. I think there's going to be a redistribution a little bit of the of the industry. I think COVID really kind of highlighted that because automatically when our First two Fulton Labs buildings open, we saw companies move R&D from coasts to Chicago, which has never happened before. And I think that's a great opportunity where they can move into a market where their overhead is going to be less for their infrastructure. They're, they're accessing high talent with our universities, um, but that workforce is going to be less than it is in, in the traditional kind of previous uh, clusters. And um, as you said, we were in a Zoom kind of lifestyle now. Yeah. You can have your executive team right. all throughout the country. It doesn't they don't have to be located necessarily in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a I've just, noticed there's a lot of CSOs in Naples, Florida. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I have some board members uh, that are that are in, in Naples, Florida and I I am jealous of them during the winter months. But yeah, I mean, we're hearing our companies who traditionally had a hard time attracting a, a you know, a chief medical officer, um, which sometimes has been a hard time for us to get. We have a lot of great CEO candidates, um, but now they're able to attract them because they can work remotely. They can live in Boston, they can live in, in San Diego, and they can zoom in um, to any of the meetings they need to, or they can fly in once or twice a month. So I, I, I just want to, so, so I'm going to go back to the fact that I'm old. So, so what I can tell you is, is that 
Um, you know, I was at I was at Lering Swan in 2008 when the recession hit, and what, and then a few years after that, you know, I went to this new company I helped create, and one of the things that you know, working in the Boston ecosystem, I always say that we were like we were a little bit like those um, tiny little mammals that are looking up at the asteroid that's that's hitting the dinosaur. So so we carved out a niche for ourselves, and it, the idea was you take a lot of distressed assets. And you figure out the most capital efficient way to get to a next milestone. And that was very, very necessary after the recession because every fund needed to return. And there were a lot of, uh, it, it's not quite the same, but the similar dynamics in that there were a lot of overvalued companies that hadn't gotten where they needed to go. So I saw this firsthand that you could do a distributed model in a capital efficient way and you did not need the footprint of these, you know, $100, $110 million Series A's. And what, what I was thinking before COVID is that we could apply that model here, right? And we could have, because you do need a distributed model, right? Especially if you're dealing with complex manufacturing and things like that, not everybody needs to be distributed. And so what I think COVID did, but more importantly, the market correction that we're seeing now is it is going to reward the people that know how to get a product to the next milestone in the most capital efficient way. And that doesn't always mean, you know, and again, like these people were my clients, right? Like it doesn't always mean that you need 20,000 square feet and enough swag for everybody. And I think that's really, to that point, I think we should absolutely be networked everywhere. But I think we have a real potential to set up value creation here. And and I mean, you know this better than I do, but there are whole funds where that is their thesis, right? Go to the go somewhere where the big guys aren't, get the assets at a reasonable valuation, use distributed resources, and you will win the day. Yeah. So, and I'm winning selling. the day means more and better products for patients Absolutely. that are curing currently incurable diseases. So it's, it's really interesting to watch how science is moving so quickly that in many ways, spotlight on COVID, you know, record levels of um, funds raised by venture funds through limited partners, over $40 billion in the last 24 months. And yes, there's been a problem in the public markets, but that is not, it, it's certainly affecting valuations For as sure. you look at early stage investment opportunities. But the fact of the matter is there's still a ton of dry powder available to invest in early stage opportunities to move these, you know, breakthrough technologies forward. I think the promise of seeing what happened coming out of the vaccine development programs, mRNA and, and other uh, types of modalities are just the tip of the iceberg in terms of, you know, what's to come for, for innovation. And, you know, Azuri, if, as you look out kind of over the course of the next decade, um, what do you think will, um, uh, transpire as you think about the bigger vision, kind of building on your your earlier point, your bigger dream, not just even for Chicago, but even thinking kind of about the industry itself. How, how What do you think will transpire over the next kind of decade to continue to elevate the importance of uh, uh, biotech in the biocentury? Um, and how might it be uh, enabled and fueled by um, we talked a lot about, you know, some of the limiting factors, you know, with your career and how hard it was to get to where you are. But do you see a better future for uh, women in leadership positions, for example, as you look out over the, the next decade in biotech? Will we have more diverse teams at the executive level, at the board level, that are driving into new markets that are currently may, maybe not being pursued? I'm just throwing a couple things out there, but what are your thoughts? Sure. Yeah. No, I hope so. And I am hopeful, right? I can just talk specifically about a women in bio. One of our signature programs is called the Boardroom Readiness Program. And so we've placed almost 150 executive women on board specifically in the biotech industry. And, and so how do we do that, right? We really invest in top talent and put them through a training program. And that training program is very specific to the actual detailed needs of what it takes to be a good board member, as well as what it takes to overall build your network such that you're more attractive to that CEO who's looking for the next board member. Well, and network is so important too. You don't Absolutely. really, you get, you get to kind of learn that over time that yeah. how important you mentioned, you know, your name is being mentioned in conversations where you're not involved. And that connective tissue 
is so so important and it's unseen. And, exactly. And yeah. I feel like that really is one of the differentiating factors to really help you be successful, particularly in spaces where may not have necessarily been open for a good amount of women. So we're really proud of the boardroom readiness program. And then even specifically locally, there's a 3.8 program, which is specific for startup boards. Mm. So if you think about that early stage technology that we talked a lot about, those either academic founders or founders that you know found a good product, they need strategic support. They're in the trenches. They're raising funding. They're building teams. They have this idea that they're excited about, but they need to understand the business markets. And so very often, you know, you either hire a consultant, you have some really smart friends, or you need incredibly talented and skilled folks on your board who've gotten products to market, who know the regulatory process, who know the venture and finance process. So that 3.8 program is very specific. We're in the third cohort now, and we're expanding to other regions. It's very specific for those startup companies, because we want these companies to be successful. We don't want them to languish and really not be able to move towards that next key milestone. So we're really proud of those two programs. But as programs like that and similar programs continue to run, what we're seeing is an expanded pool of talent that are interconnected. And that continues to drive forward the innovation. So we're really proud of that. And then just a point on R&D. I work in R&D strategy now. And what we do is look across timelines to really think about better ways to optimize. I'm seeing a lot of folks in, in biopharma and pharma really develop out functions that are almost SWAT teams that really focus on accelerating R&D. So what I see just in terms of the future of R&D is that shorter timelines for development, more effective clinical trial designs that are much more patient-centric and that are able to reduce the burden so you're not, for example, in a pediatric study, you know, asking for a child to be at the hospital for three months just to do continue, you know. So really being much more thoughtful in the clinical trial design, ensuring that the endpoints are incredibly ecologically valid as well as clinically valid, and quite frankly, staggering how you interact with the health authorities. You 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 would be very impressed with how we literally cut time off that regulatory process by being more agile and being more proactive with those engagements. Why does this matter? This matters because that could save you, you know, 12 to 15 months off a timeline, and that's days for someone's life. So I'm really impressed with my colleagues in pharma and biotech and how we're being more strategic and de-risking R&D, which cuts costs and it helps save lives much more quickly. And hopefully it's delivering better products because you're really at the patient interface. Special thanks to our sponsors, World Business Chicago. Connect with World Business Chicago, the city's economic development agency, and discover more about the city's vibrant life science ecosystem. From Chicago's global universities and research institutions to its diverse pipeline of skilled talent and vibrant neighborhoods, as well as its cutting edge lab and office space, Chicago has the fuel for your company's success. There's no better place to build a life science company than in Chicago. You know, I'm sure you're asked often from colleagues, you know, pricing of pharmaceuticals is always a hot button topic. But part of what you're talking about is how can we shorten the timeframes? You know, there's that early innovation, the discovery of the molecule, the early testing that's expensive, but the big cost is typically once you get into humans, it's a long, lengthy, very expensive process. So I agree with you that optimization and cutting timelines, getting products to patients faster, um, using new science to allow us to do that. Exactly. Again, the AI, the analytics, the new tools that we have today that we didn't have 10 years ago, maybe put us in a position where you can actually you know, put that concept uh, in, into practice. So exactly. I, I agree with that. I, I, I applaud those, uh, those actions as well. Uh, John, if we think about, you know, back to, back to the beginning, we talked a little bit about kind of uh, economic development and, you know, thinking about the future. I know that when we, when we look at the region and we look at the state and the city, you know, we have two champions in Mayor Lori Lightfoot and Governor J.B. Pritzker as we think about welcoming life sciences uh, to our community. And that's, you know, really, it's a new thing for our region. I mean, that we're, we're blessed with a strong, diverse economy, and, and it's really distributed across many different areas, whether it be finance or manufacturing. And so life sciences is very new. I think it's getting a lot of new attention. But if I, you know, if, if we had to kind of uh, ask for a wish list and thinking about, you talked a lot about in the beginning, uh, economic development in some respects is about influencing policy. What would you ask J.B. Pritzker? What would you ask uh, Lori Lightfoot that could be improved upon what we're currently doing right now to support this opportunity that we all believe is going to create better economic outputs, more diverse workforce, you know, growth and wealth creation, all those good things and, and good products at the end of the pro- process, like what what are some next steps that maybe 
could could be really helpful from a policy perspective here in the state. Yeah, and I think the interesting thing is we don't have to recreate anything. I think we have to modernize the way that our state and our city kind of operates. Um, and that is looking at the typical incentives and programs that we had for larger companies and making them available and, and applicable for, for smaller companies. Um, and so we talked a little bit R&D tax credit before. That needs to be addressed. Pennsylvania has a great program where their tax credit, um, you can get a waiver as a startup company and sell your waiver to a larger company um, and, and claim that credit right away, basically, by bringing in that revenue. Um, that's important. Um, you know, our, and so that's, that's going to be things that we're going to be looking at, I think, when we also look at kind of the state, um, there's there's going to be a big kind of focus, I think, in the next couple of years on, first of all, onshoring manufacturing um, and, sure. and, and supply your, chain. your yeah. supply chain. Mm-hmm. We, I mean, we were just talking about CAR-T a little bit ago. Mm-hmm. I just read an article this morning that there's a waiting list for CAR-T therapies because the companies can't produce it fast enough. So there's going to be an expansion of manufacturing. And I think we have to really take a look at, we are perfectly placed as a state, as a city, um, for that opportunity. Yeah. Um, we have the land, we have the ability to train the the people to work in those facilities. Um, and so that's something that as a state, we need to take a hard look at. Um, as a city, when we're talking about, and one thing that um, COVID really brought to light is health equity um, and the design of our therapeutics and devices and making sure that they can be used by everybody. And so as a state, we have to take a look at um, and we know there's going to be a big driver on focus on clinical trials and diversity in clinical trials. A lot of our companies are already proactively working on that. Chicago has one of the most diverse and densely populated populations with a number of high-level academic research hospitals. We are perfectly placed um, to be a home for clinical trials and kind of lead this kind of revolution. Um, but we have work to do around that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we annually have about a thousand sponsored clinical trials. In Chicago, which seems like a lot, um, you look at a state like Florida, I think they have like 4,000. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we that's a great opportunity. It's economic development. It's health equity. Um, we also need to make sure that as we are creating not only treatments but cures for diseases, that they can be accessible to everybody. Um, and so we need to look at making sure that we have the programs and policies in place to make sure that every patient can access new therapeutics, new devices. Um, one bill that passed last year, um, Illinois was the first state to provide comprehensive biomarker testing for all residents. Any resident that has insurance can access biomarker testing in the state of Illinois and not get charged for it. And so that's in, it's a really important program, um, but also a model of looking forward as we're looking at these new gene and cell therapies and CAR-T, we need to make sure everybody can can access them. Right, right. So, I mean, it's a two-piece on the, on the economic development piece, but also on the patient access and health equity piece. Well, really well said. I mean, great assets that we can leverage, but I think telling that story and then, um, as you kind of rightfully point out, I mean, I remember trying to get any any support from the state in building our companies here, and they're they historically have been more tuned toward our past, you know, manufacturing mm-hmm. and creating manufacturing jobs. If we were a manufacturer, we would have had a plenty of opportunity for um, support on tax credits and things like that. But tax credits for biotech companies who are losing a lot of money before you can get a, a profitable product on the market don't really have a lot of value. So what you're saying is that there are a lot of good examples out there that are being adopted by other states. It's just basically poaching those ideas, yes. getting them through our legislature, and making this a place where not only are we having the market momentum that we're seeing right now, and maybe um, without all those incentives in place, but but by putting those incentives in place, really amplifying and making more sustainable the long-term success and growth for the region. So, John, I, I just want to make a comment, and it'll go from economic development back to the network. Right. One of the things that I think, I mean, there are a lot of reasons why Massachusetts is Massachusetts, but one of the things that they did do with the Life Sciences Center that Deval Patrick signed in 2008 is that they gave tax credits to pre-revenue companies. So if you created, I can't remember exactly how much, but if you created a certain number of jobs, even before you were a commercial um, you would get a check from the state of Massachusetts. And that was really powerful for a number of reasons. One is most of those companies failed. <laughs> but that's actually really, really important because the companies that failed, those people stayed and right. they got other jobs. Right. And if you actually look, and I can't remember who looked at this, but if you actually look at like a successful biotech 
you know, management team. Um, they have had probably more misses than they've right. had wins. Yeah. It's and a that, long game. It's got to be in a long game. That's not mm-hmm. a bad thing. And right. so we took that idea, not the tax credit part, but we took the network, you know, do it, maybe learn some things, lather, rinse, repeat. We took that and we put that in our entrepreneurial fellows program for exactly that reason. The idea that we would train these fellows together, they would work on early science commercialization. Then when they go out to the ecosystem, our thought is because they're, you know, we have them pledged to stay in Chicago for a certain number of years, we know that at this stage, they're going to try a lot of things. Those things might not have the commercial success that they want, but if they have repeated uh, successive efforts, they'll be so valuable. Uh, no, and uh, as we wrap the conversation up, maybe just kind of go around the horn and just any closing comments that you have, and maybe to stimulate the the, the thinking there um, as you as you kind of wind things down here in the conversation. Um, with looking at where you are right now, Azuri, what would you tell your ten-year-old self, kind of as you got started on your journey? What is it a hopeful future? And um, what would you, if, if for for a young Azuri aspiring to <laughs> to be where you are right now, any any quick tips in closing as we try to welcome in a much broader and influence through this podcast, a much broader you know. Uh, population that is maybe seeing biotech as a potential pathway where maybe before they weren't. Absolutely. I'd say keep going. Keep going. There's space for you. You know, I was enthusiastic. I was doing all of this on the side of my postdoc and on the side of my global Fortune 500 management consulting role. This has always been my side interest, but I do it because I love it and I'm passionate about it. But quite frankly, it took time. Mm-hmm. It took, it took, a, it, there were a lot of seeds very early when I came back to Chicago of showing up, studying online, figuring out the players, who's who. I literally wrote an Excel sheet of names. Many of you were on that, right? But it was like trying to understand the who's who and what did they do and what was the scope and meeting folks. Just asking, hey, can I have coffee? So over over the years, you know, they see you like, oh, there's 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 this person. I've seen her around a couple of times. Okay. You know, you build those relationships. It can take time. And but just to, I'd say, <laughs> to my 10-year-old self or 10 years ago, keep going. There's space for you here. The seeds will grow. And another thing I like to tell young people, you know, everyday grace and grace to grow. Everyday excellence, excuse me, and grace to grow. Being committed to excellence in all that you do, how you treat people, how you show up to your work, how do you think, right? Everyday excellence and grace to grow. You're going to fail. They're going to be things that don't work out. They're going to be folks that don't like you. Keep going. Keep going. Give yourself that grace as you continue to blossom. And at the end of the day, things start to congeal. Then you become the sponsor as you get sponsorship. So keep going. There's room for you. Well, I think you're on somebody else's Excel sheet now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Michelle, your your closing comments. I'm going to steal this from a relatively well-known comedian. I would say if somebody asked you, you know, where do you see yourself in five years, just say celebrating the fifth year anniversary of you <laughs> asking me this question. <laughs> and it's really, I think it's it's not too dissimilar in some ways to what Azuri said, right? Is, uh, you know, everything, everything that happens, I don't know necessarily that it happens for a reason, but it's all learnable. It's all or they're all object lessons. And you should go where your passions take you and not worry so much on, you know, how you measure success. Mm-hmm. So it's just uh, life Life is interesting. It takes you many different places. Follow your passion and don't worry about what you're going to do in five years. That's great. Words of wisdom. Yeah, I, I love that. And it just it, the, the biotech journey, too, if you think about it from the long approach, I mean, the North Star is ultimately you're trying to do good things. I mean, you're trying to move, you know, a product, you know, to, to help patients with disease, right? So that's always the North Star. So I think with that as a backdrop and that as a long-term aim, there's just uh, there's a lot of days that you have to rack up uh, along that that pathway. But I've always thought about you know entrepreneuring in biotech. It's almost like the ultimate explorer uh, opportunity. You know, it's it, it's adventure. It it is. I, we use a lot the you know mountaineering types of uh, analogies. Um, it's kind of like uh, I was in a meeting uh, a week or so ago with uh, one of the portfolio companies. And they were saying, I mean, is it normal to be, you know, working? We're four years in and, you know, we are, we're not there yet. It's like I said, well, I, I, 
you got a long way to go and we should be thankful for where we are right now. And let's, you know, take stock in what we've been able to achieve at this point. And I guided them to the Netflix show, The Alpinist. I said, if you want to be a biotech entrepreneur, then you got to get comfortable with being an alpinist. And that story, if you watch it, don't watch all the way to the end, the guy <laughs> dies. Uh, but it is about really the risk involved in that long journey, no ropes, but getting to the top. And in many ways, that's what you're doing in building a biotech ecosystem that's new. I mean, that's what we're doing in Chicago. So it's the same kind of mentality. Um, that's something that at least you got to have inspiring images. That's the one that that I, I was inspired by as I it recently, as I was trying to give some thoughtful advice to that uh, aspiring faculty entrepreneur that was just kind of going down this journey for the first time. Johnny, want to close us out? Yeah, I mean, if I was to talk to myself, um, let's say coming out of college, um, and I think it's 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 important. I just shared that with with somebody that we're working with who is currently in college. Is you and, you were, and you were ten years old coming out of college. I was right? ten years old coming out of college. Uh, uh, but I think it's important. Is you don't have to know. You don't have to know what you want to do. You don't have to know the whole purpose. The whole point is is getting to understand what that is, and that's that's the journey. That's the travel. And I think that's what we're doing as a ecosystem. I use the word community, um, but ecosystem community, um, and that's what we're currently doing is, is figuring out our own way, understanding what our challenges are, addressing those challenges. Um, and the other thing I would tell myself at that point also is it's all about the people, right? Uh, people are, are make are at the core what makes it happen. Um, and it's, it's building the right teams, it's engaging with the right groups, it's, it's, uh, it's um, sitting down with and, and being there for everybody um, to the point that you can be, that, that is gonna be important, that's gonna move actually the needle forward, so. Well, John, Michelle, Azuri, I can't thank you enough for spending time with me today and uh, our audience and uh, your inspiring comments, and I'm certain that you'll have an impact uh, to our listeners. And so thanks and keep up the great work. and. Um, um, keep working on that Excel spreadsheet as well, too. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today. It was another great episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with our guests today and were inspired the way I was. Looking forward to reconvening again in two weeks. Please visit our website at labratstounicorns.com. We welcome any of your comments, feedback, ideas. If you want me to ask certain questions of guests or you have ideas of people that we should be interviewing. That is all goodbye. Goodbye.